0: One, the package being delivered."
1: More than 1,800 years ago, Marcus Aurelius wrote, "...when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly." If you've ever thought the same before logging into social media, you aren't alone. In addition to being emperor of Rome, Aurelius is one of the founders of Stoicism, an ancient philosophy that's recently become widely popular among the Silicon Valley elite. The ancients
2: talk a lot about this idea of the the good life, but they never really define it. So what is it?
1: What do ancient Roman philosophers have to do with billionaire tech bros like Jack Dorsey? A lot, it turns out. Vice Senior Staff Writer Shayla Love wrote The Ultimate Stoicism Explainer, and she's here with us today to talk about what it means that the world's rich and powerful are turning to ancient texts for life advice. I'm Matthew Galt, and for Ben Macu, and this is Cyber. Shayla Love, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber.
3: Thank you for having me. All
1: right, so let's get some super basic stuff out of the way. What is ancient Stoicism?
3: So, Stoicism is a philosophy that was popular both in Greece and Rome. Most of the texts that we, uh, that the modern Stoics, which is what people who practice Stoicism today are called, most of those texts come from when. Stoicism was popular in Rome. And so those are books that people might have heard of. So there's one called Meditations by the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. There's one called Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. There's a bunch of writings by um, a philosopher named Epictetus, who was a freed slave. And, you know, essentially all philosophies are kind of complex, but the things that people focus on today is this idea between what you can control and what you can't control. That's a big focus. So to divide the world into things that you can control and really focus on those, and then the things that you can't control. Um, it's not really rational to have a lot of upset or big emotions about them because you can't do anything about them. So that's that's something that comes from Epictetus particularly, and that's a big theme in the in the modern Stoicism movement today.
1: So, who are Stoicism's adherents now?
3: So the modern Stoics make up it's a pretty diverse group of people, so it has a very broad general interest. There's something called Stoicon and Stoic Week, and this attracts people who've never been interested in philosophy before and suddenly find their way to Stoicism. There's also a big academic community, you might imagine, of people in philosophy departments. But I think what, what has really piqued a lot of interest is that Stoicism does have a big allure in the Silicon Valley world. So, for example, as you mentioned, Jack Dorsey, he's been called the Silicon Valley Stoic because he gets up at 5 a.m. and he takes ice baths. Elizabeth Holmes who's the founder of Theranos, called Meditations her favorite book. A bunch of other billionaires have been described as Stoic. And so I think there's something interesting in the community where there's this curiosity of why is this group of people uh, feel so drawn to this particular stoicism. There's not like a Epicureanism or Cynicism movement within Silicon Valley. It seems pretty particular to stoicism. So why is that? Is it something inherent to stoicism, or are they just wildly misinterpreting it as sort of the question that's in in the in the modern stoic movement today.
1: Yeah. What is the difference between ancient stoicism and modern stoicism? How has it been adapted? So
3: I I would say that one of the things that's different about modern stoicism. Is that people don't talk a lot about the metaphysical side of Stoicism. So Stoicism as a philosophy isn't just about practical guides to living and how to, you know, temper your anger or to think about your responses before you act. All of that stuff is really sort of practical. But Stoicism also had this really rich theory about the nature of the universe and reality, they were pantheistic or they were, they thought that every living thing was imbued with this divine spark of rationality. Um, And they thought that our universe was also imbued with this substance, which was called logos, which meant that everything that happens is happening just as it's meant to be. Um, And that sort of explains why you should just let things happen that are out of your control, because the universe has designed everything in your favor. So, you know, this piece of it is something that I don't hear talked about a lot when you look at, like, self-help books or podcasts, this idea of providentialism, right, which is that, like, everything is as it should be. Um, And so I think that that's a little bit of where you get into trouble with stoicism because you you can obviously imagine saying, well, sometimes things are not just or things should be differently. Just because it is the way it is doesn't mean that you should just let it be that way. And so I think that when you understand the metaphysics of Stoicism, you start to understand why it's a bit complicated for people just to accept the world around them.
1: Can we loop back to, I know we kind of explained the ontology of ancient Stoicism, but like the way it was practiced by Aurelius, how was Stoicism practiced? What was it like in, in Roman life?
3: Yeah. So I think that in Roman life for Marcus Aurelius in particular, it was very much a practical guide to living, right? It was a way of coping with the daily stresses of being a Roman emperor, for example, right? He had to deal with a lot of difficult people. He had wars going on. And so Stoicism, unlike other contemporary philosophies of its time, wasn't saying things like you can't be the emperor, you must throw away all your money and sort of like leave society in order to live a good life. It was about how to have virtue and, and live your role in the best to your ability. So for Marcus Aurelius, that would be being the best Roman emperor that he could be, but also not having to throw that away in order to like live a good life. So when we think about um, Silicon Valley, for example, I spoke to some philosophers and historians who are studying today who said that, you know, a philosophy in which you don't have to give up your status or wealth, or position as CEO of a company, it's one of the reasons that it makes this philosophy appealing to people is that they don't have to make those kinds of radical changes. They just sort of accept what their position is in the world. They accept what they can't change and just focus on what they can change, which is a very subjective thing. So they sort of do treat it the way that Marcus Aurelius did.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because as I was reading your piece, it seemed to me, and I think you you wrote about this a little bit, that it was a way for People in Silicon Valley who do have quite a bit of power, who can are world shakers and world shapers to justify inaction on things. Is that kind of the same read that you got?
3: I think that that's one interpretation. I think a a difficulty of adapting an ancient philosophy to the present day is that there are many different ways that one could adapt this to their present life. So this idea of back to the metaphysics of like providentialist thinking, everything is the way that it should be. Just focus on what you can control, which essentially is just your reactions and emotions to things, right? We can't control what happens out in the world, but we can control how we react to them. Um, That's a bit problematic when you think about something like climate change or like systemic racism, because an individual could, I'm not saying this is the correct interpretation of stoicism, but a person could say, I can't control that. I can only control, uh, you know, my reaction to it, which is that like, I'm not going to get too... Riled up about it because I can't change it. And if you're a CEO of a major company, you know, like Amazon, and there are things that you feel are out of your control and people are getting upset at you about working conditions, for example one could use stoicism to just temper your emotional reaction to that rather than really intervening and changing things. Now, I should say that the modern interpretations really vary. You have people on the one hand who are using stoicism as a tool for passivity, and then there are people on the other hand, there's a um, academic named Kai Whiting, who argues that stoicism actually is a tool for something like climate activism, because he argues that climate action is within our control and so According to stoicism, we should practice that because it's virtuous. So this is where it gets tricky when you have something that's entered modern life and it can be interpreted in so many different ways. I think another thing about this idea of what we can and can't control and things are the way they should be or is that Especially now in the modern world, a lot of our power comes from collective action. So this idea of what you can and can't control, maybe you don't have control over something like climate change on your own, but collectively we would have some control over it. And so again, you're kind of getting into this interpretive gray zone where some people can interpret it in ways that are really sort of like socially proactive, and then others can use it as a tool for passivity.
1: Another aspect of this that really fascinated me was this idea of, and you've kind of touched on it, broicism. Yeah. And this whole, there's like a pseudo self-help industry that's attached to this. Can you speak to that a little bit?
3: For sure. You know, I, I, again, stoicism is really rich with practical coping tools and like tools for resilience. So, and the creators of CBT, which is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Were are inspired to create CBT based on stoicism. They've said that before. So this idea of creating space between events and your emotions to those events, the idea that you have some control over your emotional reactions, all those things are super helpful in a, in a self helpy sense, but also as we see with CBT and like a therapeutic sense, and I have OCD, so I know how helpful CBT can be. Um, the, the issue is that when we get to something like broicism or even stoicism where the, the S is replaced with like a dollar sign is that you essentially get people working through emotional problems with something that they're calling philosophy rather than something that they're calling like therapy. Um, and so there's, you know, there's this other thing within modern stoicism and some people that I talk to, which are, you know, which are saying that, yes, this is an incredibly useful emotional resilience tool, but maybe there are some cases in which like emotional regulation is not exactly what people need in order to cope with the world. Maybe vulnerability and attachment is something that people need in certain cases instead. And and replacing any sort of emotional exploration or even something like going to therapy with stoicism, which is a very masculine, like, you know, Greco-Roman classicist culture, can help people avoid the difficult work of being vulnerable or exploring their emotions in different ways. Does this happen with everybody who reads stoicism? Of course not. But but I think it's, it is worth asking. There's a really funny meme that's like, men will blank before they go to therapy. And I've seen this in regards to stoicism, like men will become a stoic before they go to therapy. I think it's worth worth asking if you're trying to use stoicism to deal with really difficult stuff in every arena of your life, like, are there other tools that might be more useful in certain arenas?
1: Well, and there's also a slight guru factor to some of this, because we've got people like Ryan Holiday and Timothy Ferris that have these programs and these YouTube channels and books and newsletters. I believe you start off the article by explaining that you you spent a week on Holiday's like newsletter, right? How did that work?
3: Oh, it was two weeks, actually. It was a program that I paid money for. I think it was $50 or something like that. And it was called Stoicism 101. And so every day you got a newsletter that was explaining the history of Stoicism and some of its core principles. And then there were several live Zoom office hours in which Ryan Holiday was there to answer questions about Stoicism. And, you know. So I watched all the office hours and I and I read the newsletters and I tried to do what the newsletters suggested. And I wrote this in the piece. I thought overall it was very it it was it was good, right? Like it wasn't just about the self helpy life hack tips. There was a lot of history in there. There was referencing to the original text. But at some point a lot of the advice that that was in the newsletters was so basic that I just Have a hard time calling them stoic behaviors. Like, there, you know, there are things like do something nice for somebody else or wake up early and write in your journal. There are places in meditations where Marcus talks about that, but like, I still think that if you're doing those things in the name of stoicism, like, there's something interesting. It's kind of like how self care phenomena took off and like you take a walk around the block and you call it self care, and it's like, sure is it self care maybe but like can't we just walk around the block like can't you just get up early and it doesn't it doesn't have to be stoats of them in order for you to do that behavior so there was a little sense of that and i think when it gets too reductive into those little self helpy pieces then you sort of lose the point of what this is about of a greater sense of philosophy that's there so i do think overall it, it was good but i i did get that sense a little bit when i was questioning is this thing that i'm doing really Stoicism, or is this just a good thing to do in general?
1: Kind of one more tangent I want to go down here at the end is is kind of ask this big question of why Stoicism is so popular now. And it feels like, you know, we live in this time of incredible political upheaval. We've got record heat waves. Often, you know, it feels like the world is collapsing around us, and it feels as if Stoicism is a philosophy that's uniquely equipped to help people deal with that. What do you make of that?
3: I think that's true. I mean, when Stoicism was first created, it was during a time of similar upheaval, political upheaval, there were wars, there was even a pandemic. And the the rise in modern Stoicism started around 10 years ago, but it really skyrocketed in the past year during COVID-19. And I think it's twofold. One is that these emotional regulation tools are so helpful, right? The idea of just putting space between your reaction to something and events that you can't control is a really useful coping skill. And I would never want to tell somebody that like, you can't, you can't take that from stoicism and use it to your benefit. Cause it's something that I think is really helpful whether you get it from stoicism or CBT or, you know, wherever it comes from. Um, it's a pretty basic intuitive idea that helps people. But the other thing is that, you know, this idea of There are things happening that you can't control. It's really useful during periods of extreme upset, but it's not something that we should perhaps hold on to for too long, right? There was nothing that we could do in the early days of the pandemic to stop the pandemic. But now, you know, we have the vaccine. So if you're still in that mindset of like, there's nothing that I can do. I'm just going to control my response. Like there are tangible things that you can do. And one of the philosophers I spoke to said this, particularly about the pandemic in ancient Greece, which was that they had no idea the kinds of power or control over something like a pandemic that we would have in the present day. So their idea of like, well, you just can't control it. We can only control how we react to it was also born of like a profound lack of power that living in modernity has provided us. So... You know, I think there's something about difficult times that makes stoicism both extremely helpful, but we should also remember its limitations and make sure that we're interpreting it in ways that empower us both to be emotionally tranquil, if that's what you want, but also not just sort of detaching from the world around us.
1: Shay Love, her piece about stoicism is on Vice. You should read it. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on Cyber.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cypher, the part of Cyber, where we decipher the biggest week's tech stories. Today, I'm joined by Motherboard staff writer, Lorenzo Franceschi Bicarai. I'm filling in for Ben, who is once again at the beach.
2: As usual. Lucky Ben. As
1: usual. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking about three stories this week, uh, three that I think are are very strange and very motherboard uh, the first is that hackers scrape ninety thousand Gitter user emails, surprising no one. This one's by you, Lorenzo.
2: Yeah, I think this was just a matter of time, right? Uh, Jason Miller, the former one of the former spokesperson for Donald Trump, launched this new social media platform, which looks exactly like Twitter, but instead of blue, they have red, essentially, and you know they have a lot of uh, right wing people. Which I guess that's also Twitter. But yeah, when they launched it last week, well, technically they launched it on July 4th, apologies, but Politico uh, wrote about it a couple of days before, so people were signing up. And of course, uh, security researchers started to look into it because of the, well, because that's what they do. And also because in the history of right-wing tech platforms, there's a lot of bugs. And yeah, lo and behold, there were a lot of bugs in this too. And, you know, even on the first day, we quoted some researchers saying, yeah, you know, it's very easy to scrape the API set in a way that anyone can look up which accounts users are blocking and muting. There's probably a way to scrape the whole site. Uh, You know, that's what happened with Parler in January. So, yeah, you know, it only took a few days and some someone, we don't know who scraped uh, every user on the, well, we don't know if it's every user actually, but... 90,000 users, potentially most of them, if not all of them at that point. Data that they were able to get was uh, usernames, email addresses, the location that you put in when you sign up. So, you know, nothing super sensitive. You know, we're not talking about social security numbers and stuff like that. Obviously, the website doesn't collect those. But it's just something that you don't want, right? Like, you wouldn't want someone to just scrape Twitter and get all the email addresses of every single user. You know, some of them may be sensitive, you know, maybe they're dissidents in Palestine or whatever. So yeah, you know, this wasn't surprising, but still pretty bad. And Getter's response, and apologies if I'm pronouncing Getter wrong, I don't know how it's pronounced. Getter, get her. No, I think it's supposed to,
1: it's supposed to rhyme with Twitter, I imagine, right? So it's Getter like Twitter.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure why the, at at the beginning anyway so yeah getters uh miller the ceo Jason miller issued a statement saying the bug is already you know fixed we also hired a white hat um security company to do a pen test which is like okay did it just last one day or two i don't know how good that's gonna be but fine so yeah we'll see how popular this is and you know i don't think we're gonna i don't think this is the last of the security issues with this platform
1: now this this keeps happening. We've kind of teased what happened with Parler. Can you give us the context on that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, so Parler was this, or still is, I guess, this you know right-wing focused social media platform, which was pretty popular at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. And it got a lot of attention, especially after the January 6th uh, storming of the Capitol, the insurrection, basically, because a lot of the people that entered the Capitol were just either live streaming what they were doing or posting, you know, as they were doing it on Parler, which gave the FBI essentially a great place to just look what people were doing. And independent researchers scraped it and posted maps of all the posts because I think by default uh, every post was uh, geo geolocated. So. It was just like a privacy nightmare. You know, in this case, good news because, you know, these people were doing something illegal. And yeah, I mean, at this point, it's been, you know, a couple of social media platforms, right-wing social media platforms with a lot of privacy issues. And you just have to wonder, like, why, why is this happening? Are these people just, you know, trying to cut corners and they don't care? Or they're just trying to launch as fast as possible, and they're just trying to get users. You know, in a way, it's not completely unprecedented. You know, Twitter, even Facebook back in the day. You know, we're talking about ten or more years ago. They didn't have great security either. But a lot of this stuff is pretty basic. You know, it's just you don't. You probably don't even need like a security company to look into it. You just need competent developers.
1: Yeah, it just seems like they're not they're not hiring the best people, right? Because this continues to be a problem. Has anything like this ever happened to Gab?
2: I don't remember now off the top of my head, but I wouldn't be surprised. I don't remember any awful incidents with Gab.
1: No, it seems like whoever put that together uh, did a little bit better due diligence. So was this just like, it really seems from your story that this was a pretty simple scrape, scrape and dump, right? Mm -hmm. How complicated is it to, to write something like that, to do... What happened here? It's
2: probably not very complicated. Um, You know, it probably involved looking at the API and what the API allowed people to do, Uh, just understanding that, which is probably not that hard because I imagine that, you know, all APIs more or less act the same. And then it's a matter of writing a script. And presumably, the other issue here was not just that the API allowed this, it's probably that the website didn't. Put any what it's called technically as rate limits, meaning um, you know limiting a single user or IP address from doing a certain action over and over again. Because to scrape a website, presumably you know you need to like interact with all these accounts repeatedly, probably uh, in a short amount of time. So if you have some sort of a you know security measures where you're trying to you detect that, which is not particularly hard, then you can stop that activity. So yeah, it probably wasn't that hard. And again, it's not the worst data breach. Uh, you know, you could even argue that it's not a data breach, but it's just, you know, it just doesn't bode well. And and apologies, I just looked it up, but Gab did have a very bad hack. I completely forgot about it. It was in February and uh, they lost way more than uh, what uh, Getter just lost. Uh, we're talking about 70 gigs of passwords, private posts. So yeah. Gab, getter, parlor, not great.
1: Yeah, if you don't, if you just, in this day and age, if you don't have tight security and do the basics, somebody's going to walk through the door,
2: right? Especially if you are, you know, you know, not to get too political, but if you are like a right-wing platform, you're going to get a lot of eyes on you, so. I
1: think if you... If you come out the gate signaling loudly that you have a certain set of values, you're going to be a target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. The next story comes from Todd Feathers, who you know we talked to I think week before last about the the creepy live eye technology. This one is also creepy. Debit card apps for kids are collecting a shocking amount of personal data. What is going on here?
2: Yeah, this is another great story from Todd who's doing, uh, who's done a great work on privacy and, uh, especially privacy of companies that you may have not heard of. You know, I'm not a parent, so I had no idea that this was even happening and it's pretty creepy. So what's happening here is that Todd found out that a company called Greenlight, which is sort of a fintech company that sells a debit card for kids, essentially. And this means that it's a debit card where Parents can set limits on, uh, you know, spending, even on which stores the kids can can use it at. So, you know, from a parent standpoint, I can see why this is very attractive. The issue here is that their privacy policy was very broad. And, you know, we're talking about the classic, we can collect all this data, we may use it or not please give, his, give us your consent, which means sign up for the platform. You know, if you sign up for the platform, you're consenting to this. And Todd found that the privacy policy was very broad, especially, uh, you know, it included uh, stuff like um, the fact that Greenlight could collect names, birth dates, email addresses, GPS location history, purchase history, you know, essentially everything about these kids. And, you know, and it said that they reserved the right to sell it to ad and marketing vendors, insurance companies, and even the sort of catch-all term, quote, other service providers, which essentially means we can give it to anyone we want. And the great news here is that once uh, Todd reached out to the company, the company said, yeah, we're going to scrap that whole section from the, from the privacy policy but you know this is just one company there's another one mentioned the, in the story which has a similar privacy policy so you know the larger story here is that there's this whole new wave of companies that try to sell financial services to kids you know to parents and and their kids and you know i think it's going to be interesting to see what they what they get out of it other than you know whatever they uh, you know, I don't know if it's uh, you have to pay for this. Uh, you know, there's there're probably fees and stuff like that. But is there is there play to also collect this data and monetize it?
1: Yeah, I mean, Greenlight really sold this as like a way for parents to better track the allowance that they're paying their kids. Right? So it's just kind of this classic tech story of a tech company figuring out how to be the intermediary in. interaction between humans that didn't need an intermediary. Right. And then you've got the other classic tech story element of a very long terms of use document that frankly, nobody's going to read, you know? So yeah, this was, this was uh, sadly (laughs) a classic now, right? Yeah. Like all the kinds of uh, high notes that we normally Mm -hmm. get at a good dystopian motherboard story.
2: Yeah, I'm also confused by the fact, you know, maybe I'm too old and, you know, I'm not a parent yet. But, you know, when I was a kid, I just got cash as an allowance and that was it. And there was never really a problem. Well, how are you going to
1: buy, how are you going to buy V-Bucks in Fortnite with cash?
2: Right. Yeah. It's, it's a different world right now. But it's also like, I don't know. Maybe this is also, you know, the consequence of a cashless society, right? Like there's a lot of places where you can't pay in cash. So obviously you're gonna need to give your kids some some something like this. But yeah, the question the question is probably more like, do you want like a traditional bank, which is you know highly regulated, uh, in some ways more trusted, or one of these startups that you don't even know what their game plan is?
1: All right, and then do you want to introduce this last one?
2: Yeah, and for the last one, I guess we're gonna switch seats, and uh, this is a story about. Uh, Biden, President Biden signing an executive order on right to repair. Uh, Matt, you've done a lot of work on right to repair over the years. So, yeah, how big of a deal is this and what's going on?
1: This is a big deal. And the, to be clear, the executive order, maybe it will have been signed by the time this 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 episode goes out. But on Tuesday, the 6th, Jen Psaki, uh, White House press secretary, uh, said that Biden is working on an executive order around the right to repair specifically for farm equipment. Um, that the FTC and the Department of Agriculture were partnering with him to kind of craft the language. We don't know exactly what it's going to say, but that they are going to, uh, I think her exact quote was, give farmers the right to repair their own equipment how they like. Um, this is a. I think this is an incredibly big deal because one of the... One of the biggest aspects of this right-to-repair fight – well, let me back up, actually. So for anyone that doesn't know, the right-to-repair simply is just a legislative movement that's going on in the country right now to in, to get laws set in place that allow people to repair their own stuff. Often we have iPhones and laptops and things that break. We take them into Apple or some other manufacturer, and they, they want to charge ridiculous amounts of money – uh, far above the cost of the of, the, service, of uh, the goods to repair the device. You know, if you've ever broken your iPhone and taken it and found out that it's going to cost $400 and it might be cheaper just to buy a new one, this is the kind of legislation we're trying to get past because right now, people like Apple and John Deere uh, who manufacture farm equipment kind of have the mon- a monopoly on repairing uh, devices. So one of the big aspects of this has been farm equipment. Um, John Deere, it's not just John Deere, but John Deere is one of the most popular, uh, you know, combine, uh, creators increasingly in the past, like 20 years has added more and more computer stuff to its tractors. So you've got all these onboard computers on like a John Deere tractor. If something like you, something goes wrong with the tractor, it, uh, registers to the computer, throws an error code. Then the tractor shuts down. Uh, even if the farmer knows how to repair the physical problem, on the tractor to get it running again, he can't tell the computer. He literally doesn't have the tools to tell the computer, the onboard computer, uh, that it's okay for the tractor to run again. He has to call a tech, or get or or pay for a subscription service to uh, like this this John Deere um, repair stuff to be able to get access to the stuff he needs to clear out that code and get the tractor running again. So what's happened is. The cost of tractors that were manufactured in the 1970s, before these onboard computers were put onto the put onto the machines, has skyrocketed. So You've got the secondary market where people are going and buying old tractors. Farmers are trying. I have been lobbying and complaining about this. Uh, there's there's like a whole darknet market around like hacking tractors, getting them working again. And several years ago, John Deere's had said by 2021. Uh, that it would make its tractor significantly easier to repair. Jason, you know, our, our editor in chief, Jason and I wrote a story at the beginning of the year where we called, you know, we, we, te- we tried to find out if that was true. We called around to John Deere dealers and we asked them, you know, Hey, can we get access to X, Y, and Z to help us repair our tractor? And to a person, we called a whole bunch of stores all over the country to a person. They all said, no, you need an authorized tech to go out there and handle this. So, it's not just tractors Uh, this, you know, it's also iPhones and Android phones. It's everything, everything there's computers and everything now. And increasingly the people that manufacture it don't want you to repair it. They want you to buy, frankly, they want you to either buy a new one or pay them a whole lot of money to repair it. Mm -hmm. And it's been shocking to me as like, I've broken my own stuff and replaced batteries on laptops and things, how easy and quick it actually is to get this stuff done and how cheap if you know where to look and like know how to get the tools, you can save like hundreds of dollars by doing it yourself or paying some guy in a strip mall to do it. Paying some person in a strip mall mm-hmm. to do it for you. Um, so this is a good first step. We've there's other legislation that's going through. There's a, a bill in the there's a bill in Congress. It's the first federal legislation that would cover right to repair. And there's a bill working its way through uh, through the New York state legislature that has cleared the Senate, but has not cleared the Assembly. And there's bills being considered about the right to repair and enshrining it in law in half the states in Mm -hmm. the country right now.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, this sounds like great news. And I think it's a sign that, you know, this issue has become completely mainstream. And it's you know, it's past the tipping point. You know, I remember when when Jason started to cover this a few years ago, you know, it was sort of like a, a niche movement. A lot of people didn't really understand why it was a big deal, but it's the problem has only gotten worse, right? Like Apple was definitely the first. Or Apple was probably the first computer manufacturer that, like, you know, made a conscious decision to make everything they made impossible to repair, impossible to even open. It's, you know, uh, Google does it with their Android phones. Uh, I feel like even Dell's are probably not that easy to repair anymore. It's just everyone has seen that this is another way to milk the cow. So. So yeah, it's great that we're finally seeing some laws. I guess the big question for me here would be, you know, is it ever going to move to Apple and the tax sector? Is John Deere just an easier target for for legislators? Like what, how do you feel about that?
1: That is, that is my one worry here is that I feel like the farmer farm equipment is like a slam dunk, right? Like that's so every, like it, as far as American politics go, it's pretty easy to get everyone on board with helping farmers right? Everyone instinctively understands you have to protect the people that that produce all of our food. And I do worry that uh, this is great, but I worry that this is one, like now if this executive order gets passed, then all the other legislation doesn't have farm equipment to back it, right? Then you're just talking about personal devices and you're just talking about more consumer goods. And that—that that is my one caution here, is that we can't let this victory stop us from pursuing the wider goal, which is right to repair for everything. Yeah, a universal you know, right to repair. Universal right to repair, correct.
2: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and I'm sure that this story will keep being, you know, at the forefront of our attention, as it should be.
1: Absolutely. Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming on to Cypher and walking us through these complicated tech stories.
2: Thanks, Mets. This was fun.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.